Dear Lord, help us now as we would seek to understand you better based upon your revelation of yourself. Lord, as we would want to know you, as we would want to understand better so that we might worship and respond in a fitting way. Please use your spirit to open our eyes so that we would comprehend and stir our hearts so that we might be faithful worshipers of Christ because of what he's done for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this morning, I would like you to turn to Luke chapter 4, if you have a Bible, because we're going to look at the temptation of Jesus. And I have one of two options for you. I can preach a sermon. It's as if I have two sermons in my Bible. I don't actually, but it's as if I do. I can preach a sermon on the temptation of Jesus, and you can leave here today despairing. How does that sound? Oh, just what I was looking for. I came to church so I could be despairing. Well, I can preach this passage in such a way, and it often is preached in this way, that you can leave despairing. Or I can preach this passage in such a way that you can leave with hope. You can have hope and you can have more hope, confidence in the future because of what Christ has done. Now, it's a no-brainer. I know which one you would choose. Uh, you, you want to have hope. Christianity is about hope, hope in what Christ has done, hope in what Christ promises. But isn't it strange to consider that we have our Bibles open to Luke chapter 4, the temptation of Jesus, and the very same passage, the very same historic account could be used by a preacher to accomplish two very different things. You see, what I could do, and I'm not going to do, is I could tell you that we're going to look to Jesus primarily as an example of how to overcome temptation. And that sounds good. Jesus is a great example. But if we're looking at him primarily that way, that translates into this kind of message. Do more, try harder. And come back next week for more, do more, try harder. You see? There's something about that that appeals to my self-righteousness because I can do more and try harder. But the problem is, none of us are Jesus. And do more, try harder ends up leading to despair because we can't do enough and we can't try hard enough. We can know this morning that the right way to approach the temptation account is a hopeful approach. This is in our Bibles, not so that we can have a great example to follow first and foremost. It's in our Bibles first and foremost to show us and to tell us about how great Christ is and that Christ is a success in being tempted and that he didn't succumb to temptation and that in him and what he's done, we have salvation. See, that's hope. That's hope in Him. And I know that's the right way for us to read our Bibles because when you step back and look at the Gospel accounts, you see that Jesus didn't primarily come to be that great example for all of us so that we can all try harder and do more. We know that that's not the right way to read it. For example, the beginning of Matthew, He gives us the best clue of all. He gives us the name of Jesus. Let the name Jesus help you to know how to read your Bible. Let the name Jesus help you to know how to read the gospel accounts. You say, what are you talking about? In Matthew chapter 1, 
we hear these words. You shall call him Jesus because he will what? He will save his people from their sins. Jesus, before he is an example, and he's a great example, don't get me wrong, is a savior. He's a savior. And so he does what he does, including the temptation, because he's a savior to be trusted in, first and foremost, before he's an example to be followed. And you say, why are you telling us this, pastor? Because I'm a pastor. Because I care and I want you to, to see Christ for who he is and I want you to have a sure hope and I don't want you to live your life in despair by misreading and misusing the Bible. His, his primary task in coming here is to secure a salvation for us so that we can trust in him. And I also want to tell you this because so many times we drift into that problem of do more, try harder, and we think that's the message of, message of Christianity. And the message of Christianity is it's been done. Christ has done everything for us. We need to trust in Him for sure hope. Just as an interesting historical point, and then I promise we'll get to the sermon. This is the introduction to the introduction. So this doesn't count against me time-wise. Um, actually does, I know, I'm, I'm aware. About 100 years ago or so, and it's happened before, but just about 100 years ago or so, that's a pretty recent time when this has happened. You have churches divided. Because some pastors who were naturalists, they didn't believe in the supernatural. I'm not sure why they were pastors. They were naturalists. They were anti-supernaturalists. They didn't believe Jesus rose from the dead. They didn't believe Jesus died an atoning death. They didn't believe in those things. They really liked things like the Thomas Jefferson Bible with the miracles out. We're divided from the supernaturalist pastors and churches. Follow me. The supernaturalists, the Christians in the historic sense, believe that Jesus rose from the dead. Believe that Jesus voluntarily went to the cross and died an atoning sacrifice for everyone who would ever believe so that they could be forgiven. The naturalists, the anti-supernaturalists over here, they despised atonement. They despised any kind of God that would require atonement. They didn't believe in the supernatural. And here's why that little controversy is important. The anti-supernaturalists, the naturalist, week in and week out, pointed to Jesus as the great example. Follow his example. Follow his example. They would have loved to preach Luke chapter 4 and tell you all of these great timeless truths and moral principles so that you too can overcome temptation. And over here, the Bible believers... The supernaturalists, Christians in the historic sense, preached, trust in Christ. Trust in Him because He and His perfect work provides salvation. And oh yes, He is a great example. But before He's ever an example, He's a Savior. 
And I mention this as a pastor because I'm burdened that so many times, and when you've heard it and I've heard it and so many sermons end up being about do more, try harder from the example of Jesus. You know, what would Jesus do becomes the mantra. Well, what would Jesus do is an important bracelet if you have had it in the past when it was trendy. Provided on your other wrist you have a bracelet that's bigger and better and it says, what did Jesus do? We're talking about two different religions. The religion of follow Jesus, try more, do more, try harder. And the religion that says Jesus Christ provides perfect redemption. Trust in him. Now that's probably longer and more theological than most sermons, so maybe I should close in prayer. Um, but we haven't looked at the Bible yet. Um, just a little history lesson. I'm trying to prepare you to look at Luke 4 and the temptation as a unique temptation, not your temptation and my temptation. Because he's the savior before and before, uh, excuse me, before he's an example. Look with me if you would, Luke chapter 4, beginning in verse 1, we read, And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan, chapter 3, we saw the Jordan is where he's baptized by John and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. Verse 2, for 40 days being tempted by the devil and he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. You've read it before probably, if not a hundred times. Jesus is led into the wilderness. Think in terms of Palestine. Think in terms of, of Middle East. Well, when you think forest, it's not Sherwood Forest. It's not a forest that you might know of. It's desert, desolate, dangerous. And he's led there to be tempted. And now we need to stop for a moment and talk about the significance of that temptation. What is significant about that temptation? Consider with me the significance of the temptation of Jesus, even based upon those opening two verses. Why is this happening? What is the significance? Well, let's look at it from multiple angles. The, the place is significant. Where, where does this happen? It happens in the wilderness. It happens in the desert. Well, other places in Luke, we learn that's a place of great demonic activity, so it's dangerous, not just in the physical, but in the spiritual and yet sometimes it's a place where people go for isolation, maybe because it's dangerous, so they have special fellowship with God. But here I want to highlight the fact that when you see wilderness, in light of Jesus being the Messiah promised in the Old Testament, there are meant, there, there's connections that are meant to be made in our minds. Wilderness, Israel, associated with their lack of trusting God oftentimes, and here, wilderness, desert, we're going to have to see if Jesus acts like Israel as they were in the desert, and we're going to see that he doesn't. But it's significant for that reason, no doubt, if you're thinking in terms of the Old and New Testament together. The temptation is also significant. In fact, it's hugely significant. Let's think about who Jesus is. Look at chapter 4, verse 1. This is, this is worth four stars in your margin of your Bible if you're a right-in-your-Bible kind of person. It says in verse 1, and Jesus. That, that right there alone is almost enough for me to say that, that that's hugely important. But it's hugely important if we remember how chapter 3 ended. Remember, we add the chapter divisions for convenience. 
But we just learned about who Jesus is according to his genealogy. And now it's Jesus, please. If you only write in your Bible once a year, do it now. Okay? Draw an arrow from the last verse of chapter 3 to Jesus in chapter 4, verse 1, because it's meant to be in the flow of things. Jesus isn't just anybody here being tempted uh, in, in the desert. It says at the end, I think it's in verse 38 at the end, that he is the son of Adam, the son of God. Oh, that's hugely important. Who is this guy who's going to be tempted in the desert? He's none other than the son of Adam, son of God. That is crucial. We talked about it last week. If you're just joining us, you're welcome. Let me review for you. You came to the right place. Glad you're here. I'll bring you up to speed. But what we saw last time is Jesus is specifically and and at a high point for emphasis. It ends with he's, he's the son of Adam. And now we have him emphasized and showing that the son of Adam, Jesus, the son of Adam, is going to be tempted. You see, is anything happening in the gray matter here? Are, are, are things firing for you? I hope so. There's a connection between the first Adam and Jesus. Oh, I, I remember something about a temptation in Genesis 3, right? Oh, Adam was tempted in the garden. And as we're going to see, Adam wasn't merely a private individual. He was a public figure because he represented the human race. And now we have Jesus, who's not just a private individual. He's a public figure. He represents everyone who would ever believe in him as the son of Adam. The temptation is meant to look similar because where the first Adam crashed and burned and plunged us into rebellion and its consequences... Jesus, hopefully, 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 well, we know the answer, is not going to crash and burn. He's going to lead us into righteousness. I want you to see this in a couple of other passages. I reference these all of the time, and I feel kind of convicted that I don't have you turn there because I don't want you to just take my word for it. So let's look up two texts. One would be in Romans uh, chapter 5, and the other one would be in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And so if you just put a marker in Luke 4, we're we're grappling with why is this temptation happening? It's happening because of who Jesus is. Jesus is the last Adam. Jesus is the son of Adam. Jesus is the second Adam. Jesus is the representative like the first Adam was a representative. And if you're new to the Bible, you don't need to turn to those passages. You can just stay in Luke and But what happens is we've got the historic narrative in in Luke, which is crucial and important. It teaches us a lot. But then we learn even more about the theological framework and the interpretation of things in places like Romans and 1 Corinthians. And so so let's allow these texts to help inform us as we look to the, the, the temptation of Jesus. A lot to get your mind around on a Sunday morning, huh? just got to tell you, though, this is where ultimate hope comes from. We have a representative, and he gets us out of the predicament we're in. That's where hope comes from, ultimately. 1 Corinthians, did you go to 1 Corinthians or Romans? All right, we'll go to Romans. That's called congregational government of the church. So here we go. Romans chapter 5, verse 18 says, Therefore, as one trespass, 518. 
Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men. He's talking about Adam. So one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. Oh, wow. Uh, I, like it or not, I, it's not up for vote. God didn't ask me and he didn't ask you. But God has chosen to deal with our human race through representation. Through two different Adams. The first Adam leads the entire human race into sin. And according to the context of Romans 5, the last Adam, Jesus, leads all who would believe in him into righteousness, according to context. That, that, that helps me understand Luke 4. If it's a contrast of temptations. Now go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 with me, if you would. You can just turn to the right uh, a little ways to 1 Corinthians 15. Look at two different verses there. What we're trying to see here is what I'm going to call an Adam theology. You've got to have a good Adam theology or you won't understand the Bible. Representation. They're not mere public figures. They're, they're real figures, but they're not merely public or private figures. They're public figures. They're representatives. Not exactly like, but in some ways like uh, we would see in government. 1 Corinthians 15 <clears throat> verse 21 says, for by a man came death. In this context, that would be Adam, representative number one. By a man, now we have the man Christ Jesus, representative number two, has come also the resurrection of the dead. This is, this is gospel. This is good news that we have, we have resurrection and it comes through a representative. Now go to chapter 15, verse 45. Just one other sample text just to get you a flavor for, for how the Bible interprets the narrative we're looking at in Luke. 1 Corinthians 15.45 says, Thus it is written, The first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam, that's why I call Jesus the last Adam so often, the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. Contrast between physical life and spiritual life, but he's nonetheless called the last Adam, the final representative of two representatives. And if this is new to you, you might not be where I am, but this is where I get excited and start doing this, you know. I get excited and can't keep still, and I get fidgety with my hands, and, and it's like, yes, this is great. It's not dependent upon me. It's not dependent upon my, my efforting or lack thereof, and it's not dependent upon me doing all of the right things because I keep doing the wrong things. It's not dependent upon... Do more, try harder. That's not good news. That's not gospel. Good news is we have life. We have resurrection in representative number two, the last Adam for finality's sake. Finality's sake. And it's in Christ in His finished work. And you say, why do we need to understand all this to understand the temptation? Well, in a sense you don't, but in a sense you do. Because we see such similarities between the one who was in the garden called Adam, and the one who is called the last Adam elsewhere, and he is being tempted by the devil, not in the garden, but in the desert. But he's tempted by the devil nonetheless. It is kind of interesting to see the comparison and how similar they are. There are some differences. You do have garden, desert. So Jesus has it tougher than the first Adam. Um, Adam had a full belly, 
Adam number one, Jesus has uh, been fasting for 40 years. He's got a little tougher. Uh, Satan, you know, his first, first shot at tempting a human being was with the first Adam. And then he has thousands of years of experience. And uh, he goes for the last Adam, Jesus. But the parallels are what we're meant to see. And the parallels are striking. And these end up being the, the, the working fabric that undergirds and, and holds up what we call the gospel. The good news about Jesus Christ. Hope is found in Him. Hope is found in the last Adam. Timing is significant too if you want to go back to Luke chapter 1. I'm on the second introduction now and I'm almost done with it. And then we'll get down to business. Introduction number two. Timing is significant also with the temptation, uh, I believe, because if you go to verse 2 of chapter 4 of Luke, it says, for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. The way the Greek grammar is there, being tempted, it's something that, 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 is, that is ongoing, being tempted. The idea is all of the 40 days were temptation. It wasn't just these last three. The last three, if you will, are the punctuation marks, are the high points. You might call them the low points. But this whole thing has been a temptation for Jesus. And what's recorded for us is the end. So timing is important in that sense. It helps us to appreciate even more what Jesus did on our behalf as the last Adam. It's the concluding act of the drama that we have recorded. Timing is also important because in verse 2, if you look there with me, you'll see it says, for 40 days. And you have to be careful with numbers in the Bible because sometimes people read way too much into numbers, it would seem, and it could be abused. But sometimes it's important to see that there's a significance of, of numbers and connections. Perhaps this is because Israel was in the wilderness and their desert wanderings for 40 years. There's at least somewhat of a similarity there. Numbers 14, Deuteronomy 8. Especially since Jesus is going to quote Deuteronomy so much. But even more significant and more similar would be the 40 days where Moses fasted. The 40 days where Moses was on the mountain to receive the law of God. And now Jesus, when he is tempted by the devil, quotes Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy. It would seem fitting to make some connections and say, as Moses received the law of God and broke it, by the way, Jesus fulfills the law of God as someone far greater than Moses. As Israel was disobedient, Jesus will be obedient. He's the law keeper. He's the one that we're trusting in ultimately. The spirit is significant and then we'll move ahead into the temptations. It did say in verse 1, he's full of the Holy Spirit. He's controlled by the Spirit. Uh, returned from the Jordan in verse 1 and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness. Notice the double emphasis is Spirit, Spirit. Chapter 3, the Father speaks from heaven, sends the Spirit like a dove for this unique launching of Jesus' public ministry. And now, did he go to the desert because of bad luck? Did he go to the desert because of adverse circumstances? No, with double emphasis, double emphasis, if that gets your attention. With, with purposeful emphasis, Jesus goes to the desert to be tempted by the devil, by the Spirit. 
by the Spirit. This is on purpose. This is according to the plan and purpose of God. Big picture because He's the last Adam. He's going to be the perfect Redeemer. This is divine design that this is happening. So with that in mind, let's get to the sermon. You can start your clocks now. Temptation number one. Verse 3 says, The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. If you are the Son of God. What did we just hear, those of you who are with good memories and who were actually here last Sunday, what did we hear audibly from heaven? You are my Son. In no uncertain terms, God Himself, God the Father speaks, and He says regarding the Son, You are my Son. As clear as a bell. You are my Son. I have great pleasure in you. Remember that. I may forget to keep emphasizing it. But as Satan time and time again says, If you are the Son. If you are the Son. If you are the Son. What is Satan doing? The temptation is all about questioning God's word. It's all about questioning the the goodness of God and the the trustworthiness of the Father. That's what Satan does. That's what he did with the first Adam in the garden. He questioned God's word. He questioned God's goodness. And now Jesus is being tempted as the last Adam. Will he continue to trust in his Father who said, You are my son. Or will he somehow need to maybe prove that he's the son? Or do something to provide for his own needs because apparently the father isn't treating him like a son. Just keep that in mind. Is he going to trust his father or not? Adam, number one, didn't trust God. He didn't take him at his word. He questioned his word. And so we need Jesus to come through. Let me, I have a question for you. Does Jesus have the power to create food? Well, yeah. How about to to tens of thousands of people he he created food? Not just 5,000, multiple occasions, counting uh, boys and girls and women. Thousands upon thousands of people he could feed. The power is not the question. What's at question is the goodness of God. Here he is led by God. Remember that, led by God into the wilderness. And now will God provide for him? He's led into the wilderness for that temptation. And so is God going to provide for him when he's hungry? Or does he need to really question the genuineness of his sonship by feeding himself and going it a different way? So in verse 4, look there, it says, And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall, live, man shall not live by bread alone. Quoting Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3, which, interestingly enough, Deuteronomy 8, 3, deals with provision, God providing for the nation. Is God good enough? Is God powerful enough to provide for the nation? Well, in our case, is God good enough to provide for His Son or not? See, Jesus' rebuttal, Jesus' refusal tells us a lot about what is meant by what Satan's trying to get Him to do. He's trying to get him to provide for himself, whereas it should be the Father providing, the Father taking care of him. Take matters into your own hands. Be like Israel was. 
And the son doesn't do it. The son refuses. Once again, just think about the chronology of things. The father speaks from heaven. He's, you are my son in whom I am well pleased. And I'm going to send my spirit upon you. And I'm going to send my spirit to send you into the desert to be tempted. Is Jesus going to trust his father to provide for him or isn't he? Is he going to trust in the goodness of God or isn't he? The first Adam didn't. And he led us into condemnation as a representative. Here, so far, so good. We have Adam number two, last Adam. And he is doing what the first Adam didn't do. And we can be glad that we have him as our representative. Yes. Yes. Temptation number two. Verse five. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world. All the the inhabited regions of the world, I think, is the literal way to see it. Everything that's inhabited there in a moment of time. And said to him, to you, I will give all this authority and their glory for it has been delivered to me and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will be yours. How about that? This, I, I, I'm such a child of television. Um, this can be yours if the price is right. <laughs> My parents should have bought us books, but I don't know what they were thinking. <sighs> Instead, it was Bob Barker. You should spay and neuter your pets. I mean, it's like, why, why, why do I know all this stuff? It's some useless information. It's supposed to fire my imagination. Oh, now more pop culture. Uh, anyway. He's saying, this could be yours. All you need to do. All you need to do is pay homage to me. All you need to do is worship me. And I will give this to you. It's mine to give. Think in terms of all that Jesus has to do, all that he has to go through. We know that he has to go through a lot. We know that he knows he has to go through a lot. And, and, and when he talks about it, the disciples are trying to talk him out of it. We know because of messianic prophecies. We know because of, uh, of Isaiah that he has to suffer and go through all of these things. And here is Satan saying, you know what? You can have the crown without the cross. And we know how bad it is. It's not like, you know, Jesus, because he also was divine, just said, no big deal. We, we know what Gethsemane looks like. And here Satan is saying there doesn't have to be a Gethsemane. Just worship me. What's interesting about this business of just worship me is whether or not he's telling the truth. What do you think? It's a dangerous question, I know. Satan telling the truth? I think it's one of those kind of, I got to give the answer on one foot, you know. No, I'm not doing core strengthening. I'm, 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 I'm trying to, you know, walk the fine line. I think he's telling the truth in part. But he's not telling the truth in whole. Say, so how do you know that? I know that based upon his track record. I know that based upon what he did in the garden with the first Adam. Because the way he framed the promise actually wasn't what became reality, was it? That's why he's called crafty. By the way, that word doesn't, isn't even a bad thing in and of itself, but it's bad in a certain context when it comes to him. He's conniving. It, what he, the way he framed the promise to Adam is not the way it worked out. 
The way Satan is framing the promise to Jesus isn't going to work out the way he's presenting it. Because while he may be called the ruler of this present age, he's not the ultimate ruler. He's not the sovereign. As Martin Luther said, even the devil is God's devil. At the end of the day, nothing happens apart from God's ultimate perfect will. Ephesians chapter 1 says he causes all things. Who, who, who I can't think straight. Ephesians 1, uh, 11, all things after the counsel of his will. There you go. He works all things after the counsel of his will. Ultimately, Satan is a defeated foe. So in an ultimate sense, this isn't true. In a temporary here and now sense, I, I, it could be true in one sense. It also reminds me, uh, we think about who Satan is. John chapter 8, verse 44 says he's the father of lies. What he's saying is not altogether true. Remember as well that Jesus is promised to be king, the sovereign Messiah. But there's a road to suffering that comes first. I mean, uh, Psalm 2, he's promised to be the king. But there's a plan and there's a way for this to happen. And Satan is saying, you don't have to follow the plan, just worship me. The response, go ahead and look at the response at verse 8 with me if you would. And Jesus answered him, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 13. Let's just park things here for just a moment. First thing to notice, Jesus doesn't succumb to the temptation. We're glad. Hope. We leave with hope today. A successful last Adam. This is an important one, though, because it really kind of captures the idea of all of the temptations. Because at the end of the day, whether he does the, 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 the bread trick, so to speak, or whether he performs some other miracle, whether he jumps off the temple, as we'll see, they all come back to this one, right? It all comes back to, are you going to give God, the one true God, the worship that he and he alone deserves, or are you going to not? Are you going to take God at his word or not? That's what it ultimately comes down to. It makes me think of Romans chapter 1 where it's talking about the same kind of reality and it says they did not honor him as God. So they worshiped false things. Deuteronomy is important because in Deuteronomy, even though he's referencing Deuteronomy 6.13, the context is everything. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, listen to this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. There's only one God. And notice what he says next. If there's only one God, that demands a logical necessity. Listen to this. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. We forget the context of that sometimes. I'm going to remind you of it right now. There's only one God. That's the context Jesus is drawing upon. And if there's only one God, give him your all. Love him with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. There's only one logical law if there's, all, if there's only one God. I think it's particularly not just fascinating, important that Jesus is drawing upon that text. Bow down and worship me. On the first level, that would be stupid, idiotic, and absolutely crazy because there's only one God. That's crazy. And not only that, 
There's only one God. Just think about it logically. You love Him with heart, soul, mind, and strength. Isn't it interesting that that's a summary of the law? And Jesus didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. I would suggest to you that this temptation is important because Jesus is here to not succumb to the temptation. He's here to be clear-headed about who God is on our behalf as the last Adam, as the representative, so that he would fulfill the law. He would treat God as the only God because he is the only God because that's not what we do. This is awesome what's happening here. It's awesome what's happening here. The Deuteronomy texts are so profound. He, he could have gone elsewhere. But he's making a particular point that would be particularly in relation to him being a human being, fulfilling and doing the right things that no human being does. Because He is going to provide salvation for us. Let's move on to temptation number 3. Temptation number 3, verse 9. And He took Him to Jerusalem and set Him on the pinnacle of the temple. So now we're at the capital city, the key city of God. Oh, not just that, the temple. So if God is going to be anywhere, and we could say God is omnipresent because He is, but we also know God uniquely dwells with His people in the temple. Not only that, that's where sacrifice and atonement happens. I mean, if you're going to take Jesus anywhere, for great temptation you're going to take him there and if God is going to help the son anywhere he would help him here so he takes him up there on the pinnacle the estimation is it'd be about 450 dizzying feet up if you go there today even though there's all kinds of different um, archaeological things in the ground and there's you know civilization built upon civilization and things might not be as high uh, if you're walking around that the, the temple wall i'll tell you one thing you still wouldn't want to jump off and when you look up you go wow this point in time high point estimated 450 feet but i think more importantly than that i, I want to be careful about saying that just as important as where it is this is the temple this is where God meets with His people. This is where God uniquely dwells. And He said to him, If you are the Son of God, remember, that's what God said. So we don't need to question God's word or His faithfulness. But here Satan says, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. And here's Satan, the conniving one, doing what all connivers do. They quote the Bible. <laughs> For it is written... Ah, all right. Turn about is fair play. You quote the Bible? Seems pretty effective. I'll quote the Bible. Every false teacher does. If they're a good false teacher, they'll either misquote it or misuse it. I think Satan does the latter. But Satan says, all right, uh, let, me, let, me, let me have you do this. Throw yourself down, for it is written. Here's a Bible promise. It's in the Bible promise book. He will command his angels concerning you to guard you and... On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Psalm 91, verses 11 and 12. Now some people think he's misquoting it, and he might be. He's not giving the exact full quotation. That might be the problem. 
What's interesting, though, oftentimes New Testament writers don't give you the full quotation. They capture the essence of it. They might be quoting from the top of their head. It's a paraphrase. It's the concept. It's the idea. Might be that. Because the point is the same. I mean, when you, when you read the verse, you, you know what the point is. It's a, it's a messianic psalm, I think. So he chooses it from the right place in the psalm book. He will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. I just read from Psalm 91, 11 and 12. And that's the idea. The idea is God will protect you. God, God protects the righteous. I think Satan is correctly quoting the passage, quite correctly referencing the passage, he's just misusing it. He's trying to use a Bible verse against God by misusing it. God said from heaven, you're my son, I'm pleased with you. And here's Satan questioning that. You know, you might, you might want to really prove it. You might really want to prove, and maybe he's even thinking broadly here with all the people who would be around the temple. You know, this is one way to show it. Do a swan dive. Because you know the Bible says he'll protect you. It's presumption. It's the worst form of let go and let God. It's problematic. Because Jesus says in verse 12, it is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. He's quoting Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 16. And in its Old Testament context, it's a reminder to the nation to not test God, but to trust God. Jesus, as the last Adam, is to trust God for His perfect timing, for His perfect provision, for His perfect everything. And Satan, even quoting Bible verses, misusing them, is trying to get him to test God, to see if God really, really cares about his son. Well, God just said he cared about his son. So let's not question God and end up testing God, is the idea here. And by the way, if Jesus jumps off, which would have led to his physical death apart from divine intervention by his father, if he does that, it would be in violation of what Jesus says so many other times. I'm here to do your will. I'm here to do your will. I'm here to do your will. He says that in different ways, but in essence, that's what he says time and time again. To do the will of my Father. And here we would have Jesus doing something, in a sense, if you will, trying to force the hand of his Father. Prove you really care about me. Prove I'm really the Son. Prove it in my timing. Because I'm being tempted by the devil. That should be enough for God to say, you are my son in whom I'm well pleased. That, that, that should be enough. 
And Satan says, if you're the son, if you're the son, if you're the son. And Jesus, as the last Adam, doesn't flinch and does the right thing. Unlike the first Adam. Then verse 13 says, and let's get things wrapped up. And when the devil had ended every temptation. So it's comprehensive. We should be glad for the comprehensive nature of the temptation and successful testing. And then it says, he departed from him. And, and that's where we're, we're meant to see a huge difference between what happened in the garden and what happens in the desert. Because this guy is the one who is not just a guy. He's the son of Adam, son of God. Representative number two. Then there's that provocative qualifier in verse 13. Until an opportune time. That's the, the troubling part. And it's not over. This one is over. And because this one is over, when we keep reading the gospel accounts, we'll have this firmly planted in our mind. And, and then, but then we're going to see that there's going to be more. There's going to be more demonic opposition and there's going to be more conflict. So the testing isn't all over. It's going to come uh, again. And we're going we're to hear Peter say, oh, no, Lord, you can't go to the cross. You can't go to the cross. No, over my dead body. And we know what Jesus says. Get behind me, Satan. Get behind me, Satan. That'll be another big test, another huge test, because God's perfect plan of redemption in Christ includes Calvary. Gethsemane in chapter 22 is severe beyond imagination. Great, great tempting there of Jesus to go to the cross. The good thing is we know how it ends. We know he's successful. We don't have a religion of do more, try harder. We have a religion of trust in the finished work of Christ because He passes all of the tests as our representative. Our hope is sure. Our hope is secure. One more passage in this light that does have to do with us more directly. And I'll just read it. You're going to love it. I wish I would have worn my motorcycle boots today. This is a motorcycle boot passage. Okay? Perry German's going to close the service in prayer, and, and, and he was sure to show everybody and tell everybody first hour he wore his motorcycle boots. And so uh, it will be fitting. Here's what I want you to think of in, in a good Harley Davidson esque way, okay? <laughs> Biker way. If we believe in Christ, we trust in him as our representative. The Bible teaches that we're united with Him, okay? That means we're united with Him in His death. We're united with Him in His resurrection. We're united with Him in everything that we would ever need for salvation so that God accepts us as sons, as children. So if we trust in Christ, we're united with Him. And what's important about that is, while Christ Jesus defeated Satan in his perfect finished work, we're still waiting for the fullness of that to come. We're still waiting for the after effects, if you will. We're still waiting for Satan to finally be put down. We know that he will be because Christ's work is done. And then upon his return, he will finally be cast into the lake of fire. And so in the here and now, we struggle. And in the here and now, we're tempted. In the here and now, we're weak. In the here and now, we've got a life of battle. 
the solution ultimately is not do more, try harder, even though there's a place for trying and effort. That's just for a different sermon. The ultimate solution isn't do more, try harder. The ultimate solution is in Christ who did everything perfectly. And now we're just waiting for that to become, I can't think of a better word. It's a big, uh, to become reality, to become actualized. It's already done. We're just waiting to actually enter into that. And so Paul makes this kind of promise, giving theological commentary to the finished work of Christ as it relates to Satan. Romans chapter 16, verse 20 says, The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your Harley-Davidson boot. No, under your feet. Let me give you hope, believer. The God of peace, not because of your efforting, according to Romans. It's all of grace, only through faith and the finished work of Christ. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your boot. I like that. <laughs> you should like that. That's hopeful even as you might be oppressed and you might be down and you might be struggling and life is hard. The answer is in Christ, because in Christ, soon will Satan's head be smashed. And that should cause our minds to go back to Genesis 3 and that great little gospel promise about the one day defeat of Satan. Leave with hope today because of the finished work of Christ. Don't leave with hope in self because it's going to lead to despair. Leave with hope in Christ if you're trusting in him. Can't say that enough. Can't say it loud enough. Can't say it enough different ways. Praise God that Jesus is our great, great, great representative. Father, thank you so much that Jesus is the last Adam, that there doesn't need to be a third Adam, a third representative, that we don't have to be uh, that ourselves. Thank you so much that you and your perfect wisdom have provided perfect redemption in Christ. And we're glad even this morning as we've been able to sing about Christ's perfect life and about his perfect substitutionary death and about his resurrection. We are so glad to, that he has passed the test and that he has earned redemption and he has provided redemption and righteousness for us. And Lord, we're delighted in these things. And as Satan accuses us, as Satan seeks to discourage us, help us to remember that what's done is done. And we're simply waiting to enter into the fullness of our salvation. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.